Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the RSE, which is the Royal Society of Edinburgh and is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And as part of that, I'm having a series of conversations with some of Scotland's leading authorities on a whole range of topics, starting with exploring different perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. The conversations are all with fellows of the RSE who are keen to share their expertise and experience. This week, I'm speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on culture and the creative arts with Fergus Linehan, Director of Edinburgh International Festival. So we're not in a coffee house, we're both in our own homes, which explains the occasional dips in sound quality. But I'd encourage you to grab yourself a drink of something, sit back and listen to one of Scotland's leading experts talk about things that matter. So Fergus, culture is often viewed as a luxury and a nice to have, yet during lockdown it could be argued that the arts have assumed a a much greater importance for people and and in their lives, whereas our diversion, our support for mental health or helping kids with their homeschooling. Do you feel COVID has has impacted on how culture is perceived in Scotland? I think, yeah, I mean, there are so many areas where culture does impact on people. I think, as you say, in terms of mental health and in terms of social cohesion, but also particularly the economy. And that's something I think we're really seeing at the moment in Edinburgh in particular. So there are all of these different elements and I do think it's having having a big effect. I think it's having a positive effect on people. I think people are also listening to a lot of music. They might be watching a lot of things on TV or online. So it's, it's a consolation for people at the moment. And I think people are maybe thinking about it a little bit more, not just in terms of what's on a stage or on a platform, but also the social dimension to it. I think that's particularly acute for young people. I think that they identify around certain kind of either music or various other art forms. And I think that that kind of social dimension to it, or, or indeed or indeed older people, I think this is really where a lot of their social contact comes from. So for me, while it's been very difficult, it has also brought home the importance of culture in, in all sorts of ways. It's kind of, I suppose, it's, it's a bit like when it's taken away, people really notice not just the sort of the, the literal side of it, but also all of the different byproducts that come from it. And I, th- I think there has been for some time, actually, a, quite a recognition of the importance of culture. But there, there is a feeling I know in some quarters of that recognition of the value and the importance of culture isn't necessarily always followed up with the sort of recognition in terms of practical support. And I guess when you're having to make the case for funding against what might seem more sort of frontline or essential services in in areas like health or addressing poverty, I mean, that must be really hard to make the case for culture in that context. So how do you go about making the case for culture? I mean, that's specifically in relation to public funding. But I, I do think the case for culture in and of itself is being made by the fact that people miss it so much. I mean, there's a very real requirement at an economic level at the moment because we're going to have to restart the economy and we're going to have to restart it quickly. And you go back to 1947, which was when the festivals began. And that was at a time when the Second World War had just happened. The public finances were in ruins. And what was required was something that would bring some sense of joy, some sense of community, and begin to kickstart the economy again. 
So I think there's there's going to be, of course, an enormous requirement for us to invest in frontline services, but we do have to get life back again. And, you know, I, I think about people who are maybe singing the festival chorus or are part of a local theatre group or whatever else. I mean, this is what they've lost. This is what they're craving. This is where people really want to see that, that world reignited. So even though there's a very real crisis in relation to finances in cultural institutions, I think that the actual kind of need and desire for culture is going to be more powerful than ever as we come back and people need, I mean, and I think, I think that that will translate into, into public funding, perhaps in different ways, perhaps with some different priorities. But nonetheless, I think it's going to be urgent. And I think, I, I hope that people feel it. I mean, it's interesting you talk about the sort of post-war context. I mean, I was reading the other day that after the depression in the States and as part of the of Roosevelt's New Deal, there was funding for sort of federal grants programmes for writers and artists. And, and could you see something like that happening here? Yeah, I could. I mean, there's two quite different things at play. One is just the need for culture to be supported. And parts, not all culture, a lot of it exists commercially and doesn't need support. And I've, I've worked in those areas as well. But a lot of areas for it to exist, and particularly for it to have the widest possible accessibility needs that. But I think there's two separate things. I think there's just the requirement to support culture, but then there's also just the particularities of this crisis, which means that mass gatherings are a problem. It's a technical problem. And it's interesting because we're now in the performing arts, we find ourselves in alliances with football clubs and conference centres and even even kind of, you know, religions that require people to gather together. And, and in a way, maybe that's a, a better definition of culture. It's a wider definition of culture, which is the need for people to come together around some kind of, of, of shared purpose. But the the particularities of this, and we're coming to a fork in the road, I think, where both the income support scheme ends and people start going back to their industries. Whereas those of us in these particular worlds that require people to gather together aren't going to be able to go back. And that's what needs urgent support. And that's not exceptionalism based upon the importance of culture in people's lives. That's exceptionalism just based upon the technicalities of this crisis, which has shut down a particular industry. And so I think that's that's really where the focus has to go now, because one of the big concerns is, you know, this ends and come August 21, we're ready to go at the festivals. And we just have kind of a scorched earth of, of venues and companies. And, and so that, that we don't come out of this quickly. I think that's where, where the the focus of of government needs to be is just to make sure that we don't lose the whole systematic kind of world through which all of this happens. So that's that's a very different type of funding. And I I do think that that needs, I hope will be addressed urgently by, by all arms of government. And it's interesting in terms of, you know, what, what's there sort of post-COVID, if you like. I mean, there seems to be quite a lot of focus as well in terms of what, what remains at a regional level. So some of the national companies and organisations where they can rely on on state funding, but the others who are more, maybe more dependent on earned income or private income, having some particular challenges. I mean, what are, what are you seeing that encourages you sort of across the country in terms of what regional theatres and, and other organisations are doing? Yeah, I mean, and this again comes back to just the difference with this is that it's not just the normal organisations that require funding. There are actually organisations which are utterly commercial, but they have been hit very particularly by it. 
And it's very much building-based organizations, anyone with a large turnover and um, a large fixed overhead who are very dependent on ticket sales and bar income or that sort of thing, they have been absolutely annihilated in a way. So, yeah, it's quite different to usual cultural policy. It's more a kind of an economic issue. I think that regionally, I think one of the things that's been good about this is it's brought a lot of people together. Alliances have had to be formed. And um, I, I think some, some good things will, will come of that. I mean, but I, I, there's no point in being too Pollyannish about this. It is just a really, really difficult situation for most of those organizations financially. I think that what will be key over the next 12 months is going to be just what, how the timing on this goes. So how people will come back, when they will come back, who of their existing audience will come back, and these will be defining characteristics. I mean, we are, we are a kind of resilient industry, and we've been through things before. And so if things can get moving early next year, that's going to be very different to if we're still here in the end of 21. So I think that um, I would love to say that I can think of lots of positive things that are coming out of this at the moment. But I think I'd be being very unfair to all of the people around the country who are just dealing with it with the most critical of, of situations. I suppose I do, I do believe that people have noticed. It's been interesting to see how people have really come to the, the, the started advocating for their local arts organisations. And interesting what you're saying about, about Frontline and all the rest, but people have really gone, no, we don't want to lose this. I mean, we don't want to lose our libraries and our local theatres and our concert halls and that has not fallen by the wayside it's been something I think that is 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 keenly felt by communities across the country. I mean it does seem to have some parallels with the you know people who've now become key workers and essential workers in the way they might not have been talked about in that way before and similarly with culture things seem more essential as services than they might have been described in the past. I guess one of the things that from a layperson's point of view is, is what I've been seeing is some you know, incredible creativity amongst cultural organisations in terms of either the way they're doing productions or the spaces that they're using, obviously a great more use of thing, doing things online, exploring back catalogues, people coming together online. Do you think this is the start of a long lasting change or is it a temporary blip? Where do you see culture sort of going over the coming sort of months and years? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the, the most positive things to come out of this, which is that I think everyone, lots of people have been doing lots of things online before. And it's not even that people have been putting things up for the first time. It's more that the audiences are coming to it. So we're getting a much clearer idea of what works and what doesn't and how things should be presented. And I think this, it doesn't work for everything. It, it works for some things much better than others. But I think that what you're going to see is a kind of a parallel where organizations that perhaps didn't have a big online presence in the past will have one now running alongside their kind of live offering, which is really important because, you know, prior to this all happening, what we were all talking about was environmental impact. And as an industry, the difficulties that we have within, with environmental impact and the fact that we are a very mobile industry with people touring large groups of people by air and by freight, and we really needed to address that. I think that both in terms of the way we operate, we realise we probably don't need to travel as much as we were, and in terms of just what we might be able to do that could be done in a broadcast online sense, 
And maybe giving people the understanding that they can do it. Maybe people felt that they couldn't. And, you know, some of what's been really great hasn't been the high production stuff. It's been very, very simple. And so kind of, I think, I think there's something in this to sort of, which will feed into our own conversations about sustainability after the crisis. And where do you see the EIF going in that sense? I mean, do you see a sort of more international broadcasting of concerts then than maybe people coming over in physical terms? I mean, I think that there's there's a few things in it. I mean, there's a sort of an operational side to it for us, which is, you know, I mean, there is there is a time when you do need to go and you need to see work and you need to spend time with people. But like a lot of industries, I think we're finding that, oh gosh, we can still do this, but we can do it in a different way. And even if recordings are, are done at a much higher level, it may be that you don't necessarily need to go and see them. You could, because they're now of a level that you can make that call. But I do think that we will not so much try to replace a live performance with an online performance, but if someone is coming to Edinburgh, I do believe that we will work a lot harder to make sure that there's a lot more capture and broadcast on online of what they're doing. And you would hope that maybe that can create an offering which might be around Scotland at any rate. We still do want people to come and experience the festival. And, you know, part of the festival is the performance, but a huge part of it is the gathering as well. So I think, I think that that's something that, that we're certainly developing, and I can see an awful lot of more organisations developing over time. And even, even down to things like for smaller pieces where you have choreographers actually choreographing works on Zoom or on Skype, just just little things where we begin to realise that it's not always necessary to jump on a plane and there's ways in which we can work together because I think that was and remains probably the most urgent issue of our time. I mean, no one would obviously want a global pandemic, but does that make it easier in terms of when you're engaging with your international partners and colleagues that they're in a similar, or many of them will be in a not dissimilar situation, so are, are similarly receptive to sort of thinking quite critically and creatively about how things are done? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. I mean, you know, before this happened, we were having the conversation about if someone was going to tour from the US to the UK, if you go back 50 years, that was a very big deal. And they'd do it, but they would come and they would stay perhaps in London for two weeks and maybe come to Edinburgh for two weeks. And they would have eight or 10 performances in both. And, you know, it would take a long time to get there and it would take a long time to get home. So... I think that in a sense now we've got to start thinking, well, maybe there'd be quarantines in place, all of these things, who knows? So in a sense, the pandemic has has accelerated the conversation now. You're saying, well, maybe you're not going to be able to come to Europe and play in 50 cities. Or, you know, maybe you need to actually just play in two cities on this tour. Maybe you need to just slow it down. And therefore, when you do visit a place, you really need to think about the effect of what that visit is. And really need to think of it in terms of a performance, but you also need to think about the community where you are. Perhaps you need a big digital element to be able to come alongside it. Perhaps you need to be working in orchestral music and chamber music and something else. So that was a conversation we were having, which suddenly feels much more reasonable. And it seems, it almost seems like a response to the pandemic, actually. But we were talking about someone referred to it as kind of slow programming, like in the slow food movement. You, you just try to do things in, in a more profound way. And when people do travel, you need to think about it in terms of it being a very special thing as opposed to it being just a very regular thing. So, I mean, I, I do think that people will pause to think about 
going back to touring the way they were working it before because I mean we were going to do it for environmental reasons but because we all know that assuming there's it's a terrible assumption but if, if there's no vaccine at any moment in a tour the rug can be pulled from under you so you do not want what you really don't want at the moment is a 50 city 50 country tour coming up in 2021 so yeah I think I think it will I think it'll affect things a little bit like that I think as well, the funny thing is, if you go back 50 years again and people went to their local orchestra and their theatre company had a repertory company and, you know, it was much more localised and that then became a sort of almost an old-fashioned model and people wanted to go to Berlin for the weekend and then they wanted to come back and then they wanted the New York Phil to be in their city and I I think that's being questioned a little too and I, I think that we're going to have to look at how we make work locally. I mean, ironically, that old-fashioned model of having a repertory company and everyone lived within the city was probably the most environmentally sustainable model you could imagine. But certainly, you know, I think I think that we're very lucky in Scotland because we've got we've got great companies, we've got a great range of national companies. And then, you know, if in classical music, we've, you, you then go on with the Dunedin Consort, we've got the Scottish Ensemble, the Hebrides Ensemble, great artists who live here like Karen Cargill and Stephen Osborne. So we do have a kind of a rich group of artistry in the, in the country. And perhaps we're going to lean into that a little bit more. So almost the domestic, not replacing, but maybe sort of taking, taking over from some of the more international dimensions in terms of audience, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think certainly, I think we can just, it would be reasonable to expect that international audiences are not going to be traveling in the way they were for a while. But, you know, I think it's more that we just need to slow down a little bit. I do believe internationalism is incredibly important, but just maybe think a little bit more profoundly about why someone is coming to visit and what the footprint they leave behind is. Uh, so so what, what effect it has on a community. And say, if you go back and you think about something like the Ballet Russe's tours throughout Europe and how it actually changed the places it went and changed people's views of, of, of what they should be doing, I do think that we'll need to, to think a little bit. It's an opportunity, in a sense, to think about that. And I think it, it, it segues quite nicely into a discussion of what sustainable international festivals and culture might look like. I mean, it does sound that there is an opportunity here to sort of continue to build the audience and broaden the audience that experience culture in Scotland. And obviously with, with more stuff being done digitally, I mean, I appreciate what you say, that there was already quite a lot of stuff online, but we also know there is a, a remaining problem of digital poverty in Scotland and not everybody can access those opportunities. Are there particular things that organisations like yours and other cultural organisations have been thinking about around how you operate in this sort of new world, if I can put it in those terms, in a way that doesn't undermine previous efforts to diversify the audience or indeed actually seeks opportunities to continue to diversify the audience? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a huge question. And you're right about the digital poverty. And we've got to be really careful about it because it's not just about social exclusion. I think it's also about there's, there's demographic issues just in terms of age with it. And to sort of say you're going to 
put something up on you know zoom or something else means nothing to people of, of a particular age and you know we've had people saying you know yeah we'd like to do that but we don't have even, even if they have the technology you know they've got limits on their plan and you know so i think that that's that's a big question i mean i i still feel that though that what we will come out the other side of this and in a sense it's a it's a real question for us to sort of say what do we mean by our community which is sometimes a complicated question for us at the festival because people look to us to have an international remit so you're trying to think globally and then you're thinking about the UK and you're thinking about Europe because we were very much a European institution and then you think about Scotland and then you think about Edinburgh and so the idea of who is your community is is going to be quite profound, I think, coming out the other end of this. But we're also going to need a really strong sense of community. And I think if we come out the other side of this and there is a sense that we weren't all in it together, that some people were in it in a different way, it could be it could be terribly dispiriting. Because the thing about it that I think was quite uplifting in a way is is we did all do it together. No, and and there's very little that we all do together. We've all been through something collectively, hopefully for the common good. And when we come out the other end of it, I think that people will, if, if particularly events that are seem to have the possibility of a kind of a celebration, I think that that's got to be the at the most collective level. And it would, be, it would be a terrible thing if we came out the other end of this and there was a sense of celebration and people felt it was absolutely nothing to do with them because they went through everything that we went through. And, and so, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel that there's, it's going to be more urgent than ever when we come out. But it's not going to be easy. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be tough. But, you know, people still talk about 1947, about the first festival, about things like the fact that the whole city was festooned in flowers after the Second World War and how much that meant to them. But, you know, Edinburgh is a complicated city in terms of the division between wealth and poverty. And it's something I think, again, there's, there's an opportunity to think about it right now. And we really do need to, we need, we need a celebration that comes out the other side of this that makes us think of ourselves as, as, a, as, a, as a really strong community and a really strong city. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the sort of city bedecked in flowers. I mean, it, it does seem sort of using different and new spaces and public spaces for arts can be quite important in terms of exposing people who, who might not be comfortable or not have thought about going to the theatre or to the Usher Hall or to the Lyceum. Are you able to say, tell us a little bit about the light show you've got planned for next year? No, this <laughs> is the quick answer because we, um, we're still trying to work through the permissions for it. I mean, what we're trying to do is just to do something that's a little bit of a surprise. It's not really a light show per se because we can't do gatherings of people, but we do want to try and do something across places that are important to the festival just to market. But we're not actually allowed to say we're going to do a performance at this particular time and everyone should gather. It's, it's been really interesting because in the one hand, I think everyone's very keen to do things and we're trying to be as helpful as we can to the existing kind of arts companies, but it just changes week by week. And the speed at which people are comfortable with events of any sort 
is different, you know, in England to it is in Scotland. And I think just recently the idea that maybe Scotland might be able to eradicate this in some shape or form has, has added an extra sense of urgency around, around it. So we're just still working out what's, what's going to be possible. But we've got, a really, we've got some really nice ideas. We do have some really nice ideas and we'll just have to see if we can get the permissions to do it. The sense is that, no, we just need to batten down the hatches. That's what we'll do, and we'll do it later. But we just have to be as, as flexible as, as we can. And there's, there's, I think there's, again, you know, some creativity around that. I mean, I watched a film the other day and, and the, the people were using the chat function and uh, I would have hated to go to the cinema and watch a film and people would be chatting. But there was something about watching it online on my own and knowing that other people were watching it at the same time and talking about it that actually was quite made you feel like it was a bit more of a collective experience, even though I'd say I was sitting at my kitchen table by myself. I think so. I think there's a real sense of importance of ritual about it as well for people. And um, people sitting down on a Sunday in Glyndebourne Opera are putting up an opera online at five o'clock and everyone sits down and there's an intro. And these are just, you know, six-year-old operas that have been up on YouTube. And so it's, there's nothing necessarily new about it. But there's something about the idea, as you say, of everyone sitting down and then being able to chat along the side. And that where, that's where it comes back to, you know, I mean, whether you're a kind of a 14-year-old kid who who follows a certain type of music and all the people around it are your kind of escape into another world, or whether you're a member of a chorus and your rehearsals once a week or once a fortnight just have a, a, an enormously important part in your in your own sense of yourself and who you are. I mean, we do we, we do identify who we believe what's important to us, what we believe is important to us through our kind of cultural choices. And that has been sort of taken away from us. And that can be following a football team or it can be a whole range of things. But I I I think there's an enormous amount of I don't know. I think I think that we just need to be very careful as we come out of this because I think people are in a very delicate emotional state. Or certainly that's my experience of it. And it's something I guess I hadn't thought about quite so much, which is how much people use culture as an outlet for, you know, some kind of whether it's whether it's an escape from the stresses and strains of their lives or whether it's their social outlet or whether it's just kind of the sheer catharsis of the work. But in its, in its absence, I think it's really showing up um, how important it is just for people's kind of mental well-being and their just sense of themselves. And do you think that's likely to lead to a change in the audience for, for different cultural activities and indeed for the sort of things that people are looking for and what they're demanding and seeking from cultural organisations? I don't know. I mean, we've been having a conversation saying, you know, maybe we need to do something a little jolly, <laughs> generally. <laughs> um, this isn't sort of time for Gorky's The Lower Depths, and we need to come up with something a little bit... I don't know. I think that I think that people would like to have large collective moments, assuming everything is safe. I, I guess I may, maybe I'm just projecting this on because I personally just miss the crowd. But I think initially I just... I feel people will just rush back to what they've been really missing. I don't know if it will it will fundamentally shift it, but I do think there'll be a pent-up demand. So I would go to a performance every night of this week if I was let. And so, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel there's going to be a pent-up demand and I feel that 
people will just want to show their, their their loyalty to whatever it is their area of interest is. But as I say, I think I think the funny thing, the other one I hadn't quite fully anticipated was just how much it was people missing the crowd as much as they're missing the performance. And I think that, I, I, I know I'm sort of speaking personally now, but of a wonderful kind of circle of friends and colleagues and family, but you realise one of the things with COVID is whatever you have is what you have. You don't meet anyone new. You don't, you don't get introduced to anyone new. And so there's something about, about culture, as I say, whether that's football or opera, which is this idea that, that your world is expanding and it's socially expanding and it's creatively expanding. And so the thing about this crisis is it, it is, there's good things to it, but it is terribly inward looking. And I think people are, are craving kind of a little bit of, a little bit of outward at the moment. Yes, it's sort of, I mean, I know a lot of people like myself are looking forward to the hills being sort of more accessible from Friday because it does feel that we've been living our lives in a very constrained way, both spatially and experientially as well. So I can absolutely say that. I mean, it, it sounds like your plans are having to sort of evolve all the time in the, in the changing circumstances. Is there, is there anything more you can tell us about um, EIF's plans for the summers at, summer at the moment? Well, I mean, I sound like I'm just being a tease, but actually I can't because we really do have to, we do have to, I mean, we've got little things that we're doing like a series of uh, the, the best of our Queen's Hall concerts on Radio 3 throughout August and little things like that. But the other ones, I'm afraid everyone's just going to have to wait until we're hoping that by the middle of July, we can talk about it. But I would say even within that, that, you know, our main responsibility is going to be to make sure that in 2021 we can come back really strongly. And, you know, there's there's a moment with this where it's when the city is ready and when the country is ready, we need to be ready. And it's a little bit about my concern around some of the venues being in a bad financial way, an administrative way. We just need to be strong because when the switch is flipped and hopefully that will happen with a vaccine in the new year we need to make sure that first festival we do in 21 after this is going to be critical it needs to have as i say that sense of social cohesion we do need to get people to start visiting edinburgh again we're going to have to have an offering that is compelling enough to just get people back into the flow so while this august is something we do want to have some fun with it and we do want to have this sort of sense of celebration I think all of our attention has to be on on making sure that 21 is, 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 we're absolutely ready to go. Also bearing in mind that we are a larger organisation and we have an incredibly strong group of people who support us. So I think there's a role for the international festival as well in terms of perhaps even helping and leading some of the other August festivals um, to make sure that the, the festival city as a whole is there. So it's... um. I, I say, well, we're looking at 2020, 21 is really our main area of focus. So it sounds like that there's some things to look forward to, both in the short term anyway, in terms of what's coming up in, in this year's festival, whether it's lights or music from the Queen's Hall Performer Broadcast or, or other things, but also things to look forward to, hopefully in 2021, when uh, COVID-19 is put in its box, hopefully. Fergus Linehan, thank you for sharing your expertise and knowledge and talking to us about the impact of culture on COVID. And I'm sure many of us are looking forward to what EIF has to, has to show this August. Thank you. Not at all. Great talking to you.